Here we go. Let's talk about meditation. <clears throat> it seems like such a basic thing. That's why we're here. But it actually, it's, we could talk about this for a long, long time. It's not such a simple matter. So I want to talk about what meditation is tonight. And really, very simply, meditation is the art of dwelling happily in the present moment. The art of dwelling happily in the present moment. So this is both very easy and very difficult. It's very easy because we know how to do that. All we have to do is let go. And the present moment is there and we can simply be in it. But it's very difficult because we have all these habits of mind that make us not want to be here dwelling happily in the present moment. We're habitually distracted. Well, it's not easy to deal with that. So what I want to talk about tonight is that meditation is this balance between skillfulness and awareness. And I'll use the Buddha's life as an illustration. And I'll offer a simple tool that we can use to remind ourselves of that. Well, that's, that's what I want to do. So let's talk about first meditation as a skill. I like to think of this as learning to play an instrument. You know, when you learn to play an instrument, you practice a lot of scales. You practice a lot of arpeggios and you learn music theory and all that sort of stuff. Um, you have to do all that or you simply can't play the instrument. But just doing that is not making music. But we still have to have that skillful aspect. <clears throat> Let's talk about the, the story of the Buddha's life and how he approached this skillfulness and awareness. So we know from looking at the Buddha's life, the story or myth or whatever it is about his life, that he grew up a prince in a small kingdom in India and had apparently everything. He was the 1% of his generation. Everything he wanted was there. And he went out as a young man out of the, the, this bubble of affluence and saw sickness, old age, death, all manner of suffering he had no idea of. And it moved him really deeply. He wanted to find out how to help himself and others transcend this suffering that was such a shock to him to see. So what he tried to do was uh, go out and learn these meditation skills. You know, this was not something foreign to his culture. There were a lot of traditions of meditation and skillfulness and teachers out there to teach it. So he thought, okay, uh, I'll go learn that. So what, he spent six years uh, learning these skills and apparently he was quite good at it. He, he got this stuff pretty fast. Uh, and he, one of the first skills he learned was what was called the jhanas. And jhanas are levels of concentration. And there's eight, uh, eight jhanas. And these jhanas take you all the way from um, the first blush at a concentrated mind to a state so deep 
that you don't uh, any longer have any awareness of your body, of the passage of time. And there are people who can do these jhanas that enter these states where they sit for hours and hours and hours um, in a deeply concentrated state, completely unaware of what's happening around them. So these are examples of meditation skills. But are they enough? Are they enough? I mean, I think the Buddha discovered that you could do these jhanas and you could escape the world of suffering. But is that really solving the problem? Does that really do what he'd, what he'd hoped? And I think he came to the conclusion that that wasn't enough, that the skill by itself wasn't enough. You know, he almost died from this kind of asceticism that he practiced. He thought, well, I have, I have been indulged all my life, now, and I'm not happy, so in order to be happy, let's try the other extreme. Let's try asceticism. Let's try these deep states of concentration. Let's see if this brings liberation. And I think he found that it didn't by itself bring liberation. The skills, there was nothing wrong with the skills. He, he, he used the skills, but it wasn't what he was looking for. So should we practice one of the jhanas? Yeah, okay. So uh, I invite you to come back into your body and uh, find a, a posture that is conducive of your human dignity that puts you at ease and yet upright. So let's concentrate all our attention on the feeling of the breath entering our body at the tip of our nose. Now you might get two or three breaths and the mind begins to wander. Bring it back only to the tip of your nose. You hear the sound of the ticking clock, but come back to the tip of your nose. Thought arises, let it go and come back to the tip of your nose. So this sort of concentration is the first jhana, where we would bring all our attention back to a single point again and again and again. Imagine doing that for an hour or a day or a month. That would be practicing the jhanas. You're not interested here in insight. You're not here interested in watching the flow of events 
you're simply coming back to that sensation right here at the tip of your nose. That feels a lot to me like practicing scales. You know, it's really a good skill to have to, to when your mind is distracted, to be able to pull out that skill and come back to a single point of focus. So it's useful. But it's not music. Yet. By itself. Okay, so let's talk about the other, other side of this, which is meditation as awareness. So we've got meditation as skill on one side, meditation as awareness on the other side. So awareness here means something pretty specific in our context. So it means three things. It means perceiving, it means allowing, and it means embracing. So let's start with, let's do each, each one of those three. Perceiving. We have to know that we are aware of something. Uh, if we're asleep, we're not aware, but when we're awake, we can be aware. Many things are happening right now in this room and in your bodies that we are not aware of. So it, it's not a given that we're aware. So we have to choose to be aware, first of all. The second one, we have to allow or accept what it is that we're aware of. So you could become aware, for instance, of the sensation in your knee that might not be terribly comfortable. You can know it's there, but you have to make that next step. You have to be able to allow it to be there. You don't jump right to, oh, I've got to shift my position, or this is a disaster. This means I'm not going to be able to walk next week because my knee is degenerating. Oh, no. You've got to be able to allow it to be there. And then the third, it's a deepening of the allowing. It's actually embracing. It's a kind of leaning toward. So we might perceive the pain in our knee. We're aware that it's there. We perceive it. We allow it to be there. And now instead of leaning away from it, and fleeing it, we actually lean towards it. Say, ah, hello, hello, my knee pain. I know you're there. It's the aspect of loving kindness that's part of awareness. Um, the, it's not as though we have to work up a great deal of, oh, this is great, I love you, oh, you know, some ecstatic state. No, it's just simply a little opening of kindness in our heart. It's sort of like if you have a glass of water and you take lemon and you drip just a drop or two of lemon in the water. It flavors the whole water. You know, it's not like eating a lemon. It's not concentrated, but just that little bit flavors the water in a certain way. And that's what this embracing or leaning in towards is like just a little bit of opening to it, a little bit of welcoming it. So that's what awareness is. So back to the Buddha's life. <clears throat> so as after the Buddha had gone through these, this training in skillfulness, he, he really depleted himself 
uh, he almost died. And he was only from the, the kindness of, of a little girl that, that found him on the road and fed him some rice milk that he was recovered enough uh, and he could well have died on the side of the road. So he resolved that that wasn't enough. Bare aware, uh, uh, skillfulness was not enough. He remembered an experience of being a child. He was out on some sort of a uh, uh, ceremony with his father, the king, and he had time to pass while all this was going on. And he sat at the base of a tree. And as he sat there, he was overcome by a feeling of great peace. He had nothing to do. He had nowhere to go. He didn't want to be somewhere other than where he was. He was present and happy and, and aware. And he remembered that experience after he was, as he was recovering himself from his deprivations. And he said, well, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. And he resolved to sit under the Bodhi tree until he understood. And combining these two things, combining the skillfulness that he, that he acquired with this sense of kind awareness that he had experienced as a, as a boy. And he brought those two together. He didn't deny his humanity, he accepted his humanity and, and brought that into his meditation. But it wasn't enough for him just to have this bare awareness because without also the skillfulness to hold him, when the difficulties would come up, you couldn't hold it, you'd run, you'd flee. So he combined these two and he allowed his difficulties to come forward and they came forward. We use the mythical language of Mara came to visit him. And Mara is nothing other than his own suffering. And Mara brought all kinds of desires, lust and greed and power and fear. And finally, Mara brought self-doubt. And Mara said, who do you think you are to wake up? Who do you think you are to help other people in the world? And the Buddha just reached down and touched the earth. The earth is my witness. He couldn't have gotten to that point without this balance between the skills required to hold himself there in the difficulty and the kind open awareness to be able to see what was coming forth. He needed both of them. So that's what we mean when we, when we mean that meditation is both a skill and an awareness. And there's not a fixed place that we land that says, okay, I need 47% skill and 53% awareness. No, it's always a moving, uh, in a place you inhabit. And sometimes it takes more skillfulness. Sometimes it takes more bare awareness. But you will know. You will know as you sit there. You'll know what's required. 
Sometimes when I sit down on the cushion, I immediately can drop into a kind of awareness, a kind of an awakened heart, and it's lovely. And so I just sit there, and and that's all that's necessary. But other times I sit up down on the cushion, and no, that's not there. It's not there at all. And so I have to go back to my skills. I have to I have to start to practice my scales. So I breathe in, and I breathe out. One. And I breathe in and out, two. And I count my breath. And I have a whole host of these um, skillful exercises that I can do to bring myself back. And sometimes even those don't help. So then I sit, knowing that you all are here, and I sit in my suffering, and I'm held by the Sangha. So that's the skill that I pull out, to just to know that you're there. And that... Um, this, this too will pass. So I'd like to offer an analogy that you can use to remind yourself of this balance between skillfulness and awareness. It's very simple. It just uses our hand. And I think all of us in the room have hands, so you should be able to do this. So the hand has two sides, a front and a back. Well, the front of the hand represents skillfulness. You, know, you might notice that whenever we do something with our hand, we grasp, it always is with the front of the hand. The front of the hand is what bends forward and grasps. So this represents our skillfulness, our ability to manipulate, to use our hands with dexterity and appropriateness. Uh, it has some dangers, though, too. You know, the, this is also what grabs onto things, and pushes things away. So we have to be careful with our with our hand. So these these hands are are what can lead us to these deep deep um, states of meditation because we know how to call ourselves back to the cushion. It's the front of the hand that calls us back to the cushion. It's the front of the hand that notices that we're now working on our shopping list while we're on the cushion. And it says, let go of that. Come back to your breath. That's the front of the hand. That's the skills that we know that we have. So the back of the hand represents our bare awareness. Now, the back of the hand by itself doesn't do much. You know, it's not, the, it's not the locus of action like the front of the hand is. Really, what we can do with the back of our hand is observe it. We can see it. We can be aware of it. So it can remind us that even though it looks like it's not skillful, it's still an integral part of our meditation practice. You can't have a front of the hand without the back of the hand. You cut off the back of the hand, you don't have much of a useful hand. So the back of the hand um, is represents what in Japanese is called shikantaza. Uh, shikantaza means bare awareness or just awareness. And, and, and just awareness is not a skill. You know, the front of our hand, um, like as, as I learned to play the piano, for instance, uh, I couldn't do much. 
but I could get, gain increasing dexterity and get a kind of muscle memory. I gained these skills. But the back of the hand grasps at nothing. It learns nothing. It already knows about awareness, just like we already know about awareness. We don't have to get any better at it. The skillful side gets better, but it can also get worse. You know, we can fear losing it. Back of the hand, awareness, we don't have to get better at it, and we don't have to fear losing it. It just is. It's just our birthright. So we can, we can practice this shikantaza, this just awareness. So when we're, when we're aware with just the back of the hand, like shikantaza, we are aware of things and we don't spin any story out about them. We're just aware. So we can see the raven. We don't even have to label it as a raven. We just see right there. We don't have to spin a story about the raven. We don't have to say, oh, ravens. Oh, yeah. I remember when they used to steal my chicken eggs. Those stupid birds. None of that. We don't have to spin that at all. Shikantaza says that, just that, and sees it. Doesn't spin the story. Um, Back to our grocery list. Shikantaza sees the thought that the grocery list is present in the mind, but Shikantaza doesn't then add more items to it. <laughs> right? The front of the hand might be, might be starting to go, okay, let's see, we need some yogurt and some bananas. And not Shikantaza, not the back of the hand. Shikantaza says, grocery list thought is present. That's all. Just awareness. It's a lovely way to go through life, seeing things and not letting them catch you. That's really lovely. So true meditation then utilizes the whole hand. The whole hand. You, we are aware in the way we talked about with that perception, that allowing, and that embracing. And we're also skillful. Both sides of the hand are necessary. So if you find yourself drifting to one side or the other, you can just look at the side of your hand that you need to come back to. Maybe, maybe you're uh, trying too hard. Ah, there you are, back of the hand. Now you can just come back to awareness. Maybe you need more skillfulness. Maybe you're not, find, you're not able to find yourself today. Find, find your your peacefulness, your happiness. So you say, ah, skillfulness, please come and help. Look at the front of your hand. When we do this, you know, it becomes a joy to sit each day because we know there's a full range of possibility for how we can dwell in happiness. It doesn't have to be that I feel skillful all the time. It doesn't have to be that I have these, just these deep states of awareness. I can be where I am back and forth. So we can sit down on the cushion and the front of our hand reminds me, ah, my posture. And the back of the hand says, posture, just right. 
The front of the hand brings me back into awareness of my breath. And the back of my hand knows that this is wonderful to be able to breathe. What a joy. Hmm. So I like to think of this as a kind of a tension between these two things. The, the form holds me and allows the awareness. Awareness with no form is just like, you know, it's just kind of it's like a blob over here. And form with no awareness, it's all uptight. So finding that balance between those two in any moment. Do I need tighter form or looser form? And I, and I trust you to find that uh, for yourself. There's real joy in that balance. There's contentment that arises, a kind of full humanness that arises when we're both skillful and aware. So that's what I wanted to cover. Uh, a different, maybe a little bit different uh, way of thinking about meditation than we've done in the past. But you might try that. You might try finding this balance and using your hand as a reminder to keep you not on one extreme or the other, but somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle of your hand. <laughs>